can't. Can we take a vote? Is there anybody here? Well, <laughs> yeah, we've got a few. I'll, I'll stand up instead of talking behind you. <laughs> Good morning, by the way. We're trying to decide if we're going to have the camp report. <laughs> next week? Okay. Will anybody remember camp next week? I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's do it next week because I don't see anybody even, I don't even see Laura. Where'd she go? <laughs> All right. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.12. We don't read from that often, do we? Today is communion service. Uh, we'll... Uh, take our 10-minute break uh, between the services, and of course, when you hear the music, regather. No dinner, of course, and no evening service tonight, then. Um, you'll note the financial uh, note there. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Uh, next Sunday evening, uh, a business meeting to discuss uh, possible sale of some of the church property. Uh, Andrea's number there for contact. This month, we're going to an escape room uh, we'll, where we'll race the clock to solve a mystery as a team. If you're interested, sign up on the helps board, and the cost is about $20. New acts and facts are here for March, and days of praise booklets are here uh, for the next quarter, and that's in the foyer. I have a note from the Donovans. Pam and I would like to say thank you for uh, to our brothers and sisters for your thoughts and prayers uh, for Pam's mom. Yours in Christian love, Dale and Pam. All right, what have I missed, omitted? Women's retreat. Women's retreat. Do I have that? Is there a flyer? Isn't Okay. Okay, so that's upcoming. Um Make plan. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we want to do a head count today. Probably not in a week or so. We'll, we'll try. We'll try next week for a head count for ladies' retreat end of the month. Okay, great. Scripture for meditation this morning is uh, from Micah, uh, the seventh chapter. Read fifteen through twenty.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us. I'm out of rhythm. George, would you open for us? Thanks. Father, what a great privilege it is to gather in your name today. We pray, dear Father, that you would bless your word to our heart and mind. We come before you, Lord, as needy people, already having received such great uh, blessing and uh, uh, your generous gifts to us as your children, and yet, Lord, uh, we need a freshness, we need an understanding and a, a clear thought of you alone. Lord, we pray that you would help remove those things that hinder our understanding of who you are, and give us grace, Lord, to rejoice in your name for our great salvation. Bless your word this day, bless the pastor as he speaks. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 57, number 57 in the red Trinity hymnal. Thank you. 
service, someone came to me and said, this isn't really a request, but I just wanted to let you know that today is National Anthem Day. Um, so I looked that up in um, March 3rd. Um, I can't remember the date now. It came before Congress that made our, our national anthem the Star Spangled Banner. And if it would be all right with you, we could sing that for our favorite song. It has like four verses, um, but we only sing one ever. But sometimes I think there's two in the hymnal. I looked it up a little while ago, and I can't remember. It's 576 maybe in the... And I, I, I didn't actually wait for anyone to oppose me, so <laughs> I'm just going to assume it's okay. 576 in the, in the brown. I don't think it's in the red. Is it in the red? I don't think so. Do we have any more verses anywhere? There's just two. Just, just two in the red. There are four. I, I looked it up. I just didn't read it. They're, they're really, really good, they're verses. good verses. If you get the time to, to look them up ever, Francis Scott Key, the, the writer of that, who watched the bombing of Fort, I can't remember right now, um, he wrote it while he was watching the British bomb one of our forts and seeing the really large flag flying over top of, of the fort. It's a pretty, pretty cool story, and God preserved us and made us a nation under God, and that's in the second verse. So um, if you'd like to stand back up and sing this with me. Sorry. Thank you.
We'll be reading from 1 Peter, the first chapter, verses 3 through 12. Excuse me. Well, there's the ladies' retreat thing. It was under my bulletin. (laughs) Sorry. Stand with me and we'll read. Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. As the the Lord would bless the reading of his word. Please take your red hymnals and turn to number 303, 303 in the red again.
Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning, ladies, out on the uh, conference tables out there is a uh, brochures on the women's retreat, which is March 29th through the 30th. Dr. Amy Baker, this is down at Lemoyne. Um, I do not know this woman in particular, but uh, Ron Schenkel has had her uh, in his church as a speaker before. She is, uh, she's got her doctorate in Christian counseling. She works at the Christian Counseling Center in Lafayette, Indiana. This is Nuthetic Counseling, so it's not any uh, psychobabble out of this lady. Uh, this will be all biblical stuff. And um, let me see if they've got a theme here. The heart of godly thinking. It's not. Which is, Dundee is just north of of Lemoyne area. But it's not at the church is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. She has her PhD from Purdue University. And uh, which would not impress me other than the fact that she's done work in Christian counseling and uh, studied under the programs of Jay Adams, who was my professor at Westminster. So anyway, ladies, March 29th through the 30th, get yourself uh, together maybe as a group and find out who's going to go. And um, The cost is $92, which includes your tax, and that includes two queen bedrooms and so on, so you could kind of split that cost and um, be great. All right, our text is 1 Peter 3. Last Lord's Day, we learned that it is possible to love the unseen Savior, even though in our world so much emphasis laid upon physical sight. We love because we believe, verse 8. Faith and love go together, as do love and obedience. So when a person claims to love God but he doesn't obey his teachings, I think that claim is bogus. Likewise, if a person claims to believe in God but has neither love for his son Jesus nor obedience to the commands of Christ, such profession is hollow and empty. We need actual evidence in our lives to claim that we love God and his son and have that claim be valid. I run into people all the time and they say, well, I love God. Oh, you do? Yes. Do you go to church? No, never. Oh, yeah, twice a year, Easter and Christmas. Do they love God? Not that, what, Well, what God do you love? Is it the God of the Bible who tells us that we are to gather together and to worship? There's a lot of people can say about their relationship with God, but it's false. It's not the God of the Bible. We're kind of learning that on Sunday nights as we work through the video series on salvation as it's viewed in our country by a lot of different preachers. Well, we looked at many scriptures that warn against deception by others and against self-deception. That's the wickedest kind of deception is self-deception because you don't know what you just think you're in a good spot and you may not be. 
We consider it as well the harvest of loving Christ, inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 8, we escape the condemnation and wrath of God to come. And secondly, we receive the goal of our faith, which is salvation and forgiveness in the here and now. You don't have to wait to glory to receive the benefits of salvation in Christ. Well, today's study probes more deeply into that salvation as we consider the salvation the prophets foretold. And as we do, let's ask the Lord to enable us. Holy Father, send your spirit to enable us to hear and to preach the truth of your word. There's a lot of preachers out there. There's a lot of things other than the gospel of grace out there. But Lord, we understand that you have said yourself that in the latter days, and that's the days in which we are living, there will be many who claim to be Christ or preachers or prophets of Christ that your stamp of approval is not on at all. So how can we know? Well, we know them, you have said, by your word. We know them by the things that are being done or not done, as the case may be. And we're asking for your wisdom. In this whole business of understanding the salvation the prophets preached, we don't have to guess at it. It's in the word. It's in your book. And we can use that word to compare what's being said on the airwaves and television, what's being written in books. And we can determine by your spirit what's truth and what isn't. So grant us that discernment today. If I say anything that's untrue or not backed by scripture, don't bless that. But bless only that which is your truth in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the subject of the salvation that the prophets of the Bible spoke and preached. First thing I want to point you to, look at your bulletin outline there, is that the prophets were perplexed, verse 9. In that verse we learned last week that one of the things our faith is achieving in our lives is the salvation of our souls. It's not just later, but it's here and now. You don't have to wait till you get to glory to experience the joy of salvation. Peter says it this way, we are receiving this goal of faith in our time in history. Oh yes, there's future aspects of salvation. Those are yet to come, but some realities are right now. And one of the great benefits of the gospel, as it's proclaimed to us and believed by us, is that along with receiving the message, we are given an understanding of its content and meaning. Most mystery is removed. We are not kept in the dark. Wow, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for the New Testament that far exceeds what we learned in the Old. This wasn't always so for the believers. It was not so for the prophets of old. And that covenant, look at verse 10, tells us that they searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out 
the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, the Spirit, predicted the suffering and the glories that would follow. Now we read that, most people's minds go to a text like Isaiah. And we say, you mean that Isaiah, in writing Isaiah 53, concerning the coming of the Savior, the suffering he would endure as a lamb, led to the slaughter in which he was, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, verse 5, verse 7, that they had no understanding that his prophecy, his words referred to the coming Messiah who would be crucified on a Roman cross. Well, I ask you the question, why would you, why would you be surprised by that? The Bible affirms all along that none of the prophets spoke their own opinions on things. Only false prophets made up stories and then claimed them to be from God. But Peter tells us in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin. Let that sink in. Never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Our text then shows one of the corroborating evidence that this was so. Even the prophets didn't always comprehend the prophecies they gave forth Though they wanted to know, they searched to know, they gave careful consideration to every detail, trying to discover the meaning, get it now, of their own words. Words spoken by them, but given to them by the Spirit of Christ in them. That's inspiration. Inspiration means that the words are God-breathed. So they spoke them. God gave them those words. But they're going, uh, I wonder what that means. If they were simply men's words and men's ideas, that would be stupid to say that, wouldn't it? You mean you don't know what you're talking about? But inspiration means that God gave them the words and the thoughts, and they're going, I don't know about this. You see, many times they were left in the dark. Not always, not always. Daniel, for example, obviously had the ability to interpret the dreams of the kings under whom he served. God gave him the interpretations. He was known as a man who could interpret godly dreams, give right interpretations. Why would God leave the prophets in the dark 
concerning his own words. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. But you, when they spoke. Wow. In the grand scheme of things, prophecy is God revealing his will to his people and often a future will which transcends a particular time or place in history and refers to a more distant time and circumstances. And this is why we speak of the Bible as being progressive revelation. Progressive. That is, it comes to us through the centuries in segments, each sitting on the previous teaching, each adding to it by way of more information or clearer understanding, making progress, you see, that's where the word comes from, until we come to the end of the book of Revelation, where John tells us categorically, here it is, I'll read it for you, I warn everyone who hears the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, verse 18 and 19. Now, some think he's just talking about the book of Revelation. I think he's talking about the whole book. He's talking about God's revelation. John is affirming that the scriptures are complete. That's what he's telling us. There will be no more prophecies. You should use this. In your understanding, when you're dealing with people like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and people like the others, isms, that claim that they got a new book, and then an added book of theology or Bible or scriptures. John says in the Bible, right here he's reading it, we're reading it, that the prophecies have ended. There's no more revelation. He gives the testimony of of Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews words it this way. In the past, okay, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But, notice that's a transition word. But, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, S-O-N, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Until he comes again, he's seated. And his seated position indicates that nothing else on the eschatological calendar will occur before his second coming. And then additional knowledge will be ours. There's more here too. Are we to believe that none of the prophets of the old covenant age understood that Messiah was coming and that he would suffer and die for his people? Can this be when Jesus affirmed your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John 8 verse 56. Abraham preceded the time of the prophets by hundreds of years. Yet he understood that his heir was to be the Savior sent from God. Or we read again, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, John 1, verse 45. Well, they understood that Moses wrote about him, didn't they? And later Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. John 5, verse 46. What about the ordinary folk of the old covenant age? The writer of Hebrews states, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. From a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Hebrews 11 verse 13. They saw things. They welcomed them. This being the case. What was it that perplexed the prophets. When the spirit of Christ within them predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the glories that would follow. Well, when we read the phrase, the sufferings of Christ, I think our minds go to passages such as Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Jehovah, or Psalm 22, where the actual words of Christ from the cross are recorded. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. But references to the cross sufferings of Jesus do not seem to fit the context of 1 Peter. Peter has been talking about this salvation, verse 10, the salvation of your souls, verse 9, a living hope, verse 3, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade because it's kept in heaven for you, verse 4 but also a salvation that is here and now and is being tested and tried 
causing much suffering and much grief, verse 6. Now, how is Peter's audience, indeed, how are we to respond to this? What in the world is going on when God's people are suffering and yet forgiven and saved from their sin? But they're suffering. How does that compute? I would suggest to you that the phrase, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, is not referring to Jesus and his cross work, but to all believers in the latter days who would experience the suffering of Christ, but are to remember that there are glories to follow. Say, well, why would you come up with an interpretation like that? Because the construct in the original language in this text is this, verse 11. When he predicted the for Christ's sufferings. When he predicted the for Christ's sufferings. That is, for the sake of Christ, on account of Christ's sufferings. And yet these suffer for just a little while, verse 6. And it's to be kept in mind that the prophet spoke of the grace that was to come to you, verse 10. So we're to look to those glories that will follow the sufferings, verse 11, in order to keep our perspective. What perplexed the prophets in these predictions was not that such suffering would come upon the people of God They certainly knew firsthand about persecution and trial of God's people. They were part of that. The prophets were often persecuted in Old Testament times. Buried at the hands of unbelievers that didn't love God. But the timing, the circumstances, verse 11, that was a mystery to them. When would these things occur? What circumstances, politically or otherwise, would be in place to foster this persecution and trial? How extensive would these trials be? When would they come to an end? And what about the glories to follow? When would they kick in? To try to answer these questions, the prophets searched intently and with the greatest care, verse 10, and I think we should do the same. We have at our disposal more light than they ever had. We have the old covenant predictions, that's true, but also the new covenant fulfillments. We have the apostolic gospel preached to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, verse 12. So, we could say it this way, The Old Testament prophets went through a period of being perplexed by the very prophecies that they were given. Just think about that a little bit. They're prophesying words and thoughts and so on, but they themselves are perplexed about what they themselves are saying. Brethren, that is one of the subtle uh, encouragements of inspiration. People say, ah, now the word of God is, that's not God's word. The prophets just wrote their own little things down. No, they, they wrote down what God gave them to say, and then 
They saw what God gave them to say. They wrote down what God gave them to say. And then they said, I wonder what God means by all of this. Now, let me tell you, if the words are yours and the thoughts are yours, and you write down those things, or you write a letter to somebody or whatever, you don't sit there at the end of writing your letter, scratch your head and say, gee, I wonder what I meant by that. The only reason that they are perplexed is because the words weren't theirs, the thoughts weren't theirs. They were the instruments by which the Holy Spirit had them write it down. They had to be written down in order for subsequent generations of people to understand God's word. That's what the Bible is. It's the engrafe, graphe, graphite, the writings. The writings, the scriptures, not the thoughts of men, but the thoughts of God. So firstly, the prophets were perplexed by their own writings. And that's important for us to understand because of inspiration. But secondly, their perplexity was Placated, that is, God dealt with that. What calmed the hearts of the prophets in their bewilderment over their own prophecies? What gave satisfaction to their inquiries concerning the events they predicted was God's revelation to them. Here it is, verse 12. They were not serving themselves. But all those believers in the latter days for whom their prophecies applied. Verse 12. So these prophecies have a twofold message. They foretell the sufferings of God's people, but also the glories to follow. <coughs> and they didn't have to sit there and say, how does this apply to us? I don't see how this applies to us. Do you see how this applies to us? No, I don't see how this applies to us. It wasn't that. They understood that what they were giving forth was for future generations to understand. More knowledge had to come. Consider, as early as Enoch, Jude records Enoch's prophecy. Here it is. You know who Enoch is, way back. We're talking the book of Genesis here. Pre-flood. Enoch the seventh from, I'm reading. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. The generation in which he lived. Here it is. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. Verse 14. Jude 14. Well, who are these with Jesus who act as judges? Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. First Thessalonians 4, verse 14. Paul puts it this way. 
do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3. Enoch predicted, he predicted this reversal. What reversal? The persecuted are to become the judges of the future glory. That's what's going to happen. Job predicted something very similar. Job writes, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. If you say, how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. Job 19, verse 25 and following. What's he saying? Trouble now, vindication later. Suffering now, glories to follow. That's the principle. That's the principle. Whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament saints, that's the principle. Trouble now. Vindication later, suffering now, glory to follow. The psalmist write, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which would make them, of course, susceptible to trials and sufferings perpetrated by men. And then you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. The writer of Hebrews applies this text to Jesus. That's true. But also to the people of Christ saying, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2, 5-10. through 10. And this perfection process is also applied to us. Which is the principle. Suffering now, glory to come. 
we need to get that principle. When you start doing the whys, oh God, why this has happened to me? Why did that happen? What is going on over here in my life? Why can't this be better? And that, 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 that. I want you to think of the principle here. Suffering now, glory to follow. This is not heaven. Our earth is not heaven. Consider as well these prophecies from what we would formally view as the prophets. Who are the prophets? Well, people like Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, others. Isaiah writes, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy. In his distress, a shelter in the time of storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25 verse 1 and following. Note, in that day, future... What's he saying? It's the same principle. Suffering now, glory to follow. You need to keep that in mind. Again, Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, and you will be called priests of the Lord, You will be named ministers for our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following. Suffering now glory to follow. Daniel writes, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. 
those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, the first three verses. Or again, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up, they're sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Daniel 12, verse 8 through 10. Hosea writes it this way, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Hosea 13, verse 14. Malachi writes it this way, A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, And that day is coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from their stall. Malachi 3, verse 16 and following. Now, brethren, in all of these predictions, we have just two main themes. Here they are. The suffering of God's people at the hands of unbelievers. And number two, the vindication, exaltation, and supremacy of God's people when Christ comes to be glorified in his people. This much was revealed to the prophets who received these revelations. And to learn that they were serving you and me in their predictions was enough. It was enough for these prophets to placate their perplexity about the future state of God's people. They didn't have heart attacks and nervous breakdowns. Oh my, oh my, what have we just said about God's people in the future? Well, some of these are some terrible prophecies. No, they looked at the prophecies, they searched them and said, you know, it says times of trouble and distress, yes, but here's the outcome. Glory to follow. Can't be bad about that. Can't be sad about that. Trouble now, glory later. Didn't understand this now. But as I look into the future, I'm starting to get a a handle on this. And it calmed their hearts. Made them rejoice in God's salvation. You know, the salvation of God does have to work through the ages. It has to work through time. It has to work through history. 
Everything isn't boom today, right now. There's aspects that have to be fulfilled. And this brings us then to the desired effect on Peter's audience and I hope on us too. Firstly, the effect of affirmation. Jesus coming, the salvation that he brought was accurately predicted by the old covenant prophets. At the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall of the human race through them, God himself foretold the doom of Satan and the recovery of the race. Here's the way he said it. I will put enmities between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, who is Christ. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Genesis 3, verse 15. Now, granted, that's not the, exactly the clearest prophecy of the coming Savior, but it's clear enough in light of other prophecies. Let me give you some other ones. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or Isaiah 9, verse 1. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the future, God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So a Savior's coming. It's in the prophetic works. Do you know all the prophets of the Old Testament had a keen thought concerning the Savior? For example, Micah Micah tells us about Jesus' birthplace. You're going to have somebody come. He's going to be born. He's going to represent man. He has to be man. So Micah writes, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, out of you, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5, verse 2. And that was confirmed when Herod asked the religious leaders of his day to tell him where... The scriptures predicted Messiah's birth. Matthew 2 verse 5. And the Magi said, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's why you had the slaughter of all the boy babies in Bethlehem when Herod sent his soldiers in there. Did Herod believe the prophecy? 
Yeah, he believed it, all right. He believed it so much he was going to try to end the life of Jesus while he was only two years old. So, the birthplace of the Savior was predicted. David affirmed the kingship of the Messiah. Let me read it to you. It's promised to him by God. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me, says God. Your throne will be established forever. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. And now, O Lord God, keep forever the promise you made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever, and then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and following. In Luke's Gospel we read, He will be great, And he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. There it is. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. So, Micah. The birthplace. The Psalms. The kingship. Established in David's line. Oh, but they also talked of the suffering of God's Messiah. Isaiah foretold Jesus' sufferings. You know that. Isaiah 53. David said of his heir to come that he would be mocked. Psalm 22, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. Psalm 22, verse 8, that's mockery. Ten verses later, predicted how the soldiers would treat Jesus when he was crucified. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22, verse 8. So we have a birthplace established. We have his kingship recognized. We have his suffering prophesied. Additionally, we have the old covenant prophecies foretelling that Jesus' bones would never be broken, which was a common thing in crucifixion, that he would raise from the dead the fact that his body would not suffer decay, that he would see his offspring and be glad, and many, many more prophecies. All of this is affirmation of the prophecies to be fulfilled. 
But along with him, there is not only affirmation, but anticipation of Jesus' second coming. Also predicted by the old covenant prophets, as well as by the new. So this gives hope, this gives encouragement, this gives expectation. God was not discovered to be a liar in the first of the ages concerning the coming of the one who would die for his people's sins and redeem them from the curse of the law. So he's not going to be a liar concerning the end of the ages when Christ returns to assume his rightful rule as king. By the way, we have far more evidence for the second appearing of Christ. Far more. We have the fulfillment of the predictions of his first coming. That's great. Peter says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. 2 Peter 1 verse 19. So the first set of prophecies concerning Christ's initial coming into our world, dying to pay the penalty of our sin so that we could become righteous before God, they have all been confirmed. Why then would we doubt the word of the prophets concerning our present suffering for Christ, verse 11, and the glories to follow? Suffering now, glories to follow. Say, well, I'm suffering but I don't know about when, when, when is all is going to end. Suffering now, glories to follow. The gawking and befuddled disciples were greatly rebuked by the angels who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1 verse 11. Or again from Hebrews. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9, 27-28. Paul words it this way, Our citizen, our citizenship is in heaven. He's And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Or, if you want Jesus' own words, here it is. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be 
where I am. John 14, verse 2 and 3. This coming of Christ changes the state of God's people immediately and eternally. Peter writes, as you look forward, forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. 2 Peter 3 verse 12. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. God is just. He will pay trouble. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord is revealed from heaven. In blazing fire with his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 and following. Or Isaiah writes it this way. The Lord has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. Your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accomplishes, accompanies him. They will be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after. You will be called the city no longer deserted. Isaiah 62, verse 11 and 12. So my question this morning as I close is this. Are you ready for Jesus' second appearing? His first appearing was almost... I say almost a secret. I mean, he kind of slipped into our world and in a lowly pasture scene with shepherds as witnesses to his stable nativity. But that's not his second appearing. His second appearing will not be like that. John says, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and he makes war. Oh, wow. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his right thigh He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. May I say that what is Judgment Day to the world is Redemption Day to God's people. Luke writes, men will faint from terror. 
apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken and at that time they will see they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and when these things begin to take place stand up lift up your heads because what your redemption draws near. These signs are for God's people. Luke 21, verse 26 and following. By which will it be for you? Terror at the coming of Christ or inexpressible and glorious joy? Verse 8 of our text. The prophets were not wrong in their first predictions. They will not be wrong concerning the second coming of Christ. Will you be ready when the bridegroom comes a knocking at the door to receive his bride unto himself, the bride being his church? Or will you be saying, oh, not now. I wasn't quite ready. Not now. You have a whole lifetime to get ready. Whole lifetime. The writer of Hebrews says, Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today. How many todays do you get? I don't know. But why does the writer of Hebrews word it that way? It's to remind people that you don't have forever. You have today. That's what you get. And even that's not promised. My wife started out on August 15th, a year ago, in the emergency ward of Lapeer Hospital. Later that day, they moved her up to emergency care, intensive care. She didn't have a day. She had 15 hours. And here we sit today, a year or more later, and there are people, I'm sure, that are sitting here today and they're thinking, I got time. I have time. There's some things I want to do, and then I'll become a Christian. Really? You don't have the next breath, <laughs> let alone the rest of the day. I was in the hospital with Pam's mother, along with her and Dale. 
the little bit of time I was there wasn't even an hour. The nurse came in the room and looked at her mom and looked at all of us and said, Dolores is gone. She's gone. And she pulled the blanket up. You're not guaranteed your next breath, let alone the next day, the next month, the next year, the years to come. No. You're not even guaranteed tomorrow. And that's why the Bible brings everything into the present. Today, today, if you hear the Spirit's voice convicting you. This is your hour of salvation. Not the rest of the day, not tomorrow, not this evening. Today. Don't harden your heart. The other aspect, which I haven't emphasized a lot, but I will at least say it, is this. God says in his word, my spirit will not always strive with man for your flesh. What's that mean? God is saying, today is your day of salvation. And if you're counting on me to be merciful to you tomorrow while you turn a deaf ear to me today, if you're thinking tomorrow I can repent and tomorrow I can become a Christian, I'm telling you that my spirit will not always strive. He won't always be there. So today if you hear his voice, that's your day of salvation. Not tomorrow when I may revoke my spirit's voice and conviction and just let you die in your sin. See, well, that sounds like salvation is of God's doing. Hello, yes. It is of God's doing. And so when you hear his voice and, and he's pleading with you and drawing you by his spirit, that's your moment. You may never get another one. Our Lord, we pray, help us to respond to your voice, to hear the voice of God, to repent of our indolence, our laziness, our keep putting things off all the time, as though we had all of eternity, as it were, to repent and get right with God. No, we don't. <coughs> we have the breath you gave us today, which you can revoke in an hour or seconds, whatever. Help us to take seriously your warning today, today, today. Today you're speaking to us, tomorrow you may not. Today you're calling, tomorrow you may not. Today you will say, tomorrow you may not. We need to realize that God is in control of our salvation. He does call us, but he expects us to hear his call, to believe his call, to act upon it, and not keep putting things off.
Please do this, Lord. Firstly, for your glory. But secondly, for our good. It's good that we hear your call and obey. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 451. 451 in the Brown Hymnal. We'll sing this, then we're going to take like a 10 minute break and come back for our communion table for today. 451, let's stand as we sing. Take a 10-minute break. Regather when you hear the music for our communion service.